0: The words I speak and the words we hear be your words of life to us, our God. Amen. So the first slide. I've talked a lot over the last ten and a half years about how the maps we use to understand how to be church no longer work. Part of that is because we have moved from a modern world to a post-modern world. Which means the philosophical underpinnings of our world have radically changed and we're struggling to work out how to make sense of being church in this new world. A long time ago, very long time ago, Bonnie and I led workshops around the country to help people to understand some of these changes. And one of those changes is around how we understand truth. In modernity, in the West, in the West, truth became fact, and fact was established by observable like science, scientific stuff. So you do an experiment, you get a result, somebody else can do the same experiment observes the same result, therefore that's a fact, and that becomes truth. So truth became an observable fact. So if we're reading the Bible, for example, for the Bible to be true, it has to be an observable fact, which means it has to have happened in the way that the Bible says. So, for example, interestingly, atheists and fundamentalists both read the Bible in the same way, and atheists say the Bible's a load of nonsense because it didn't happen that way, and fundamentalists spend a lot of time trying to convince people that it did happen exactly that way. So... Bonnie and I know someone who spends his work is to go around the country convincing people that the world began exactly as it says in the book of Genesis. It was created in exactly that way because unless it happened that way, it's not a fact and therefore it's not true. So that's one understanding of truth. Post-modernity, however, has been influenced by other branches of science, like quantum physics. And quantum physics and other areas of science uh, have questioned the idea of the objective observer. They would say that the questions we ask, what we look for and how we look for it, will determine what we will see. So if we have the next slide. For example, light. Light is the classic example If you want to see light as a particle, and if you run a whole lot of experiments to show that light is a particle, you will find that light is a particle. But, if you think that light is not a particle, but a wave, and you run a whole lot of experiments to show that light is a wave, you will prove that light is a wave. depends on what you're looking for. So now scientists say, kind of, you know, the Anglican position, light is a particle wave, kind of both ways. It's how you hold it together, because in the end, light is neither a particle nor a wave, it is both. And it depends on the question you ask to start off with. And that can be true about how we read the Bible as well. So today in the uh, Thessalonians reading... It has that passage about, if you're idle and not working, you shouldn't get paid. Well, where you are will determine how you read that. So if you're fairly well off, and you don't like all those dog bludgers who just don't seem to be working, uh, you will say, see, in the Bible it says, if you're not working, you shouldn't get any money, so they shouldn't get a benefit. Or, if you're at the other end of the spectrum, and actually work pretty hard every day, even if you're on a benefit just trying to make life happen, and you look at a whole lot of entitled people who have inherited money, and actually don't have to work very hard, and have pretty cruisy lives, then you would say, why are those people having a cruisy life? They've been so idle, unless they work, they should get no money. Both of those readings are equally true. And in fact, a number of commentators would suggest Paul was addressing the second situation where wealthy people who were not used to working were joining the Christian community and they were used to not working but being important people and having their voice listened to. And Paul was saying, actually, you need to get off your high horse and unless you want to join in the work, You don't actually get anything, and stopping so nosy and butting your nose into everything. But that's not how we normally read it, because the question you ask and what you're looking for is what you will find. So that takes us to our reading from Luke, which I have to admit is one of those passages in the Gospels that makes me a little bit nervous, because... They are often read as being passages about the end times, when Christ returns. So, that makes me nervous, because I'm not really sure where I sit on all of that. People often bring questions and look for things that I don't. They are looking for, this is all about Jesus' return, this is what it's going to look like, this maps it all out, so we just need to pay attention to that. And that's not how I read it, so I just feel very uncomfortable. So let's just pull back for a moment and think about who are the audiences that, Luke, that are involved in hearing Luke's gospel. And there are at least three audiences. The first audience is actually the people in the story. The people with Jesus, his disciples. They're in the temple having this conversation with Jesus. So that's the first group of people. Then there's the second group of people being amazed by the temple and its grandeur and everything about it. And then there's the second group of people that, that are hearing Luke's gospel for the first time and beyond. Fifty years later, after the temple has been destroyed, after Jerusalem is no more and has been replaced by a Roman town. And they are hearing an entirely different story. It's the same words but the questions they bring to it are entirely different. And then there's us, 2,000 years later, long removed from all those events, no longer shaping how we are looking at it. We all bring different questions, and we all hear different things. So, I wonder how Jesus' words would have been heard by those first disciples, so we can have the next slide. And this is a recreation of what that temple looks like. So this is just the temple bit, and you can see all the column things around the outside. And that area was huge. And you get a sense of how huge that If, if you go to uh, Israel today, and you look at Temple Mount or Haram al-Sharif, and it is a massive area built on the foundations of this thing that Herod the Great, So there was a temple there already, the people who came back from Babylon built a temple, but Herod spent a lot of money building this amazing refurbishment. So it was, by all accounts, awe-inspiring, lots of people in antiquity describe it and, and describe how it's one of the great wonders of the ancient world, their world. And those disciples were overawed, absolutely. And just think what it would have been for them to hear that this place would be destroyed. What would they have heard in Jesus' words at that moment? We need to remember that in Luke's telling of the story of Jesus, the temple was an important and good place. So Mark's gospel, not so much, but in Luke's gospel, absolutely. The temple was a good place, Good things happen in the story of Jesus in the temple. There's nothing anti-temple in Luke's gospel. Jesus may have been a little less impressed by some of the leaders and by some of those who were involved in refurbishing the temple, but the temple itself was an, an important and good place. It's positive. In fact, Luke goes on to say that for the early Jerusalem church, they would gather there in the temple in those kind of columned areas around the outside every day to study scripture and to pray and to minister to the poor. So it was an important place. So what would the disciples have heard when Jesus said it would be destroyed? And I wonder how Jesus' words would have been heard by Luke's hearers 50 odd years later when this place is no more. After the fall of Jerusalem and all that that was spoken of has happened after the people of Jerusalem were either killed or enslaved and scattered around the empire. After this amazing building that spoke of God's permanence and power was destroyed, with all the grief and trauma, both for the Jewish community and for the Christian community. Both communities were traumatized by its destruction and what happened in Jerusalem. And then I wonder. How we hear these words two thousand years later, when that trauma is mostly forgotten. So the next slide. Some of my nervousness is shaped by the left behind movement, which says, which operates within some strands of Christianity, and it's where Jesus is going to return, and all the good people are going to go up to heaven with Jesus, and all the rest of us. Get left behind. I'm pretty sure I'm going to be one of the people left behind. Uh, and uh, and then after all the trials and tribulations that are described in Revelation happen, then I'm not sure what happens. I guess we go on an elevator in a downwards direction, but I'm not sure. Anywho, that's why my nervousness comes from. I mean, to be fair, the left behind movement has only been around for about 150 years when, again, out of modernity, people read Revelation and said, well, this has to happen exactly as it says in Revelation. So so what's going to happen? People that stand in the modern way of reading it, this has to happen this way, read these passages as predicting what will happen in the future, especially that it will happen this way and that it will and it, this also describes when it will happen. So Ken was one of the people who ascribed that. He was part of our church, the wonderful Ken. And so he was pretty clear that we were in the end times because the things that it talked about in Revelation are happening. So now is the end. That those things have been happening for two thousand years it was immaterial. There are, in fact, a whole different, a whole number of different literary styles within the Bible. There's history, there's law, there's poetry, there's theology through story, that's what the Gospels are, and there's letters, to name some. And you don't read history and poetry in the same way. You really shouldn't read law and poetry in the same way. Just imagine if our judges kind of tried to read New Zealand law as poetry, or if we tried to read poetry as law. Well, actually, some people do try to do that. And it doesn't end up well. All of these ways of writing should be read differently, as we would read a history book being different from a novel. The style of literature that is that this little passage from Luke is called apocalyptic. The book of Daniel is one of the earliest examples in the Bible. The book of Revelation is one of the last, or it is the last, it's at the end. And a lot has been written about how these books are predicting the end of time, what will happen, and when it will happen, and the when is generally now. A couple of years ago, I was at a clergy lunch, and one of the Pentecostal pastors was kind of reflecting back on his ministry, and he said, I think maybe our church has spent too much time thinking that we were in the end times and preaching about that and how the end was now, and maybe. We needed to be preaching about some different things. And I was like, "This is not a problem that most Anglicans have," but yes, that's probably true. I didn't say that out loud. Why I said it first, but out loud. Not an Anglican problem. Apocalyptic literature was never about predicting the future. Its unsettling language and imagery were designed to challenge people's understanding of the present and to know God's presence with them in whatever was happening. So the book of Revelation was written for people who were under enormous persecution from Rome. And the writer was trying to provide a way for them to know that despite this, God was present, and that in the end, God would win. And to hold on to that, despite the terrible things that were happening to them. remain strong because God was with them. It wasn't about predicting the end. It wasn't about saying this is how it's all going to end up. It was just about in this place at that time God is present with us. Stay strong. It was to help them let go of how they saw the status quo and to embrace the new thing that God was always offering. So imagine how unsettling those words of Jesus to his first disciples would have been. They would have been almost incomprehensible that this amazing temple that was so huge and so imposing and so magnificent, as important and impressive as it was, it would be destroyed. As central as the temple was to Jewish faith as expressed at that time and to Christian faith when that began after Jesus' resurrection, it would be destroyed. And there is no sense of judgment here. Luke is not saying it's being destroyed because of how bad the Jewish faith was. The temple was always in Luke's gospel a positive place. It is simply a statement. It will be destroyed. Jesus is redirecting his disciples' attention to somewhere else. So where is he redirecting their attention to? Well, we have spent nearly a year crisscrossing across Luke's Gospel. This wonderful Gospel. It's my favourite, I think. Although Mark's pretty cool because it's short. But, But I like Luke's Gospel. I love the way he tells the story and I love the parables that he includes that other people don't. So in light of spending a year listening to Luke, what do we think Jesus is drawing those people's attention to? Is he giving them a timeline for when he will return or is he doing something else? The commentators that I read think that he is redirecting them towards, well, the Kingdom of God and how the Kingdom of God has been made present and visible in Jesus. These are Jesus' last words to his disciples, and last words are always important. From this point, Jesus goes on, is arrested, goes on trial, is crucified, and then he then there's the resurrection. Last words do come from a thin place, so that it does allow people to see into the future, but they are also words that, in many ways, define what that person's life has been about, what their ministry has been about. These are not randomly placed in this telling of the Jesus story. The overarching theme in Luke's Luke's Gospel and in all the Gospels is the Kingdom of God, the Kingdom of Heaven, the reign of God. Mary's song sings of it at the beginning of the Gospel, the reading of the scroll in Nazareth, the scroll of Isaiah and Nazareth in Luke 4 describes it. Last week we heard about his teaching in Luke 6 on blessings and woes, and that lays it out. Don't be distracted from the, from the reign of God. The whole of the Gospel is Jesus making visible the reign of God. He makes the invisible visible. He treats those deemed beyond God's compassion with compassion. For example, when he offers hospitality or accepts hospitality from those seen as no longer belonging. He lives justice to those seen as outside of God's justice. So how then is the reign of God made visible in the story? Well, the story of the widow actually isn't part of this week's lectionary reading but I inserted it because the story begins with Jesus making an invisible poor widow visible. He starts with her. And the disciples' response is, Wow, look at this building. It's amazing. And he says, Don't be fooled by the magnificence of the building. He is redirecting their attention back to the poor widow. Because in the poor widow... You will find the kingdom of God, not in the magnificent buildings. It's a tough one for us Anglicans. I've got to admit. But nonetheless, we'll carry on. Jesus' response is don't be distracted by the grandeur, it's temporary. And don't be distracted by the coming calamity the temple's destructed, destruction. Don't be distracted by wars and famines and natural disasters or your own fate. Pay attention to the reign of God. Pay attention to the outbreaks of compassion, hospitality, generosity, and justice. Pay attention to the outbreaks of God's way of the way of God. Pay attention to life, not brokenness. When all seems lost, pay attention to God. Always present in this world, always doing a new thing. Don't be distracted. One more slide. So, does anyone know what the slide is about? Anyone at all? So, you all paid attention to President Biden's inauguration, and I'm pretty sure. This was one of the things that was shown yeah. in the news clip about it. So this is Amanda Gower, who the, was the Youth Poet Laureate of the United States, and she was invited to recite one of her poems at his inauguration. She is also an activist. For there is always light, if only we're brave enough to see it, if only we're brave enough to be it. We live in a world with much to terrify and distract. There is much brokenness. Not being distracted is not the same as ignoring it. It means, don't be weighed down by it. Live another way. Live for another another vision. And I think, as I said, To the children, I think the words of Isaiah offer us a glimpse of that vision. I think the whole of the Gospel of Luke offers us a glimpse of that vision. A world where God's purposes for all creation are fulfilled, where all interconnections and relationships are renewed and restored, where all of life thrives. That is what we are invited to pay attention to. So in this time of war and crisis, with inflation around the world and a cost of living pressures on us here in this country and even more so around the world. We need that vision more than ever. We need people to live out that vision more than ever. So yes, we can read this passage today as a timetable, but we can also read it as an invitation to those first disciples and to Luke's community and to us to pay attention to the signs of life and to join that work, living in the reign of God, if only we're brave enough to be it. So I invite you to spend a moment uh, talking to your neighbour about what stood out for you in that sermon or in those readings and the big question, so what? What are you going to do with it? We've got two or three minutes to do that and then we'll say the creed together. Have a conversation.